from LPM. Louisville Public Media. Support for LPM Podcasts comes from the Eye Care Institute and Butchertown Clinical Trials, where they strive for diversity, equity, and inclusion within their staff, patients, and clinical trial participants. To learn more, visit butchertown.clinic. some crazy high percentage of people who never write again once they graduate from their MFA program. We all know what like academia is like. So the odds that you're going to like graduate, sell a book and like land a teaching gig. So I felt a lot less stressed because I knew I could always go back to sales if I needed to. From Louisville Public Media, this is Five Things, the show that tells a life story through the objects we treasure. I'm Tara Anderson. I've always been fascinated by advice columnists. How does someone have the confidence, the sheer nerve to answer other people's questions about how to live their lives? Today's guest is Minda Honey, an advice columnist in particular covering relationships and dating. And she told me that being humble is a trap. This woman has confidence to spare. And at the time we recorded this interview, she also had a case of Kentucky fall allergies. My name is Minda Honey, and I am the Leo Weekly's relationship advice columnist. And I am also an essayist with a series of essays at Longreads right now called Hashtag Dating While Woke. And um, I just kind of discuss, I feel like there's no bigger gap than like what we believe and who we date. <laughs> oh, yes. So just kind of like exploring the, the gap between those two things. Yeah, I'm sure you've got some stories. Yeah. I have a lot of dating stories. I'm working on a dating memoir called an anthology of assholes. <laughs> so it hasn't always gone well. I mean, it's an uplifting read for sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and when I talk about this, like women on the internet send me emails and they're like, can I submit stories to the anthology? Oh or like, I'm like, no, no, it's just, it's, it's a memoir, but maybe volume two. Like, <laughs> we'll open it up to everyone. <laughs> I'm sure you will continue to get stories. Yeah, um, fucking reel them in. <laughs> I have not been on the dating scene in a long time and I'm kind of grateful for that. So um, thank you for uh, <laughs> for bringing the stories back for those of us who are not taking part. <laughs> You're brave and we salute you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I asked you to pick out five things yes. that have some significance in your life. And uh, we're going to talk about them and learn more about you that way. What would you like to start with? Okay. So this, um, when you emailed me, I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I'm totally down to do this. And then I had, like, just such a hard time trying to choose these <laughs> things. And I think it's because I've lived in five different states. And so I've just gotten rid of stuff. very Like, you know, just a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, I guess I'm just not. I'm definitely, like, um, like you know, I'm, I buy a lot of clothes. I go shopping a lot. I like nice things. But I guess I've just feel a lot of times like, oh, those things are kind of replaceable. So it was hard to come up with this list. But the first thing on my list is my rice cooker. Okay. She's showing me a picture of it. It's like, it's stainless steel. It's very sleek looking. Yeah. So this is a top of the line rice cooker. It's by this Japanese brand that I can never pronounce, but um, they have a little elephant and it's kind of like 
Zojarushi or something like that. Uh huh. But my mom is Filipino, so growing up, we always had like one of those really classic all white rice cookers with the big flowers on it, and you know we had rice with every meal. And whenever you know you make a new batch of rice, she's always super insistent that like you cross the rice before you before you serve it. Um, you mean like as a Catholic thing? You kind of bless it? No, you actually take the paddle and you really kind of like yeah, you draw a cross like two lines and then you have to cross the rice. That's new to me. Okay, yeah. So every time you know you make a new batch of rice. Um, They believe, like, when you move into a new home, the first thing you bring is, like, rice and salt for, like, good luck. So the rice cooker is very important. And um, I was living in Denver. I was in Southern California. My job got rid of my job. And they gave me a promotion. They moved me to Denver. And I was pretty miserable there. And I applied to grad schools. And I got into grad school at UC Riverside. So I was going back to California. And my rice cooker, I had one of the classic white ones and. The court got, like, a short in it. So I'm, like, this, like, jobless, garless grad student. And the first thing I do is, like, go out and buy a $180 rice cooker. (laughs) And my roommates are all, like, what are you doing? I'm, like, please do not touch this rice cooker. Like, don't, you know, don't put your metal forks. This is, like, a nonstick basin in here. But this rice cooker plays Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star when you hit the start button. (laughs) And then it plays a different song um, when it's done cooking. Oh, my gosh. I am, I will say, I'm definitely attached to that rice cooker. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it, it. it's a symbol of home for you. Absolutely. Right? In addition to rice, what other things did your mom cook that are just really iconic, remind you of home? Um, I didn't realize that Spam wasn't a thing that everyone ate until I was older because <laughs> she always made, like, Spam and eggs and rice for uh-huh. breakfast, um, which I think is pretty common, like, Filipino, Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of cultures that really get down on some Spam. So, um, chicken adobo, which is, like, the national dish of the Philippines. She always made that. Lumpia, which is kind of, like, their version of, like, an egg roll. Um, my mom cooks... She loves to cook. She cooks tons of stuff. Whenever my friends come to town, they're always like, oh, you didn't take us to have any fried chicken. I was like, it honestly didn't even cross my mind because I, like, don't go out to eat fried chicken in Louisville. <laughs> I'm going to have fried chicken. I'm going to, like, go home, and my mom is going to make it. Uh-huh. And pork chops. She makes the best fried pork chops in the whole world. And did you learn any cooking from her? Um, not really. She's, <laughs> she's very particular about like her kitchen it has to be very clean. And she's kind of like, did you like ever play like video games with a boy when you were like growing up? And they're like, Oh, they're trying to take the controller. Like, Oh, just let me do it. That's kind of my mom. If you're trying to cook in her kitchen, like, Oh, let me, let me stir that pot or like whatever. And she doesn't measure anything. So if you ask her for a recipe, like she can't tell you or so I didn't really get into cooking until I went to college. Um, my dad was also, um, you know, he cooks, and so he, he would make dinner every night. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I didn't really get into it till I moved out of my parents' house. And so I cook. I can make a pretty good chicken adobo. So. Hey, hey. And you got the rice. I have the rice. Did you grow up around a lot of Filipino family? No, so um, I was actually so my mom is Filipino, so I was born in the Philippines on the Air Force Base, mm. and then we came to the states when I was about one because my dad's family is here in Louisville. Uh, so I didn't really grow up with any of my Filipino family, mm. but there's way more Filipinos than you would imagine in Louisville because Fort Knox is so close. Mm. So a lot of like just kind of like Filipino military brides. So I did grow up in a culture of like half and half kids, like kids whose dads had been in the military and whose moms were Filipino. Mm. 
Mm -hmm. there's a crew of us. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we don't speak, we don't speak the language and like we don't, we won't eat necessarily everything that our mom makes. Um, Just kind of like growing up with like in and out of different cultures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And do you find yourself having to like explain, do people ask like, what are you? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that, that's always a, an awful question. But yeah, people ask that or they're like, oh, I'm going to guess what you are. It's like, Ooh. I'm not a carnival game. Like, I don't. <laughs> and I think when I hang out with my white friends, like it really weirds them out because they're like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> and I'm like, this is just my life. But yeah, I do. Um, I guess uh, a lot of people see me as a bit ethnically ambiguous. So I do spend some time having to explain that. I think a little less time when I was in Southern California just because there's just a lot more and different types of people there. But I do stick out a little bit more in Louisville. ready to go on and talk about your next thing yes so my next thing would have to be my car i wouldn't say necessarily that like i am in love with this particular 2015 blue hyundai elantra Uh just having a vehicle in general is really important to me I've done a lot of driving. Uh, when me and my ex moved to California, like we took a couple of weeks and road tripped across the country and camped Fine. out. And then when I moved back, I took like a similar road trip by myself camping mm. out. And so it was just kind of like this narrative arc of, you know, coming <laughs> to the end of like your 20s yeah. and being a single person and coming into your own as an individual. But and yeah. it was with this car? Uh, so the road trip back was with this car. The road trip out was with my car from high school, which was a little red Jetta. Mm. I was very much a Jetta girl. I love that car. Even when I went to buy this car, I was definitely looking up. Like I was like, oh, I wonder if I just cop a 2003 Jetta. Like I love that little car. But Jettas are quirky. They always have like a lot of weird kind of issues mm-hmm. to them. And the parts are really expensive. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I could buy a 2003 Jetta in um, 2016. But probably be signing myself up for some issues mm-hmm. um, and then I was a Rubbermaid rep so I was a mop bucket salesman and I had a minivan to keep like my cleaning carts and my mop buckets and oh all my that gosh stuff in. tell me how you got into that uh, well <laughs> <laughs> I've always been kind of a salesperson like uh-huh. My first job was at Dairy Queen making ice cream, and the drive-thru girl, like, just no show, no called one day. So they put me on the mark, the drive-thru <laughs> window, and I uh, was really good at upselling people, so they made more money with me on the window. So then when she, like, tried to come back and get her job back, they're like, no, we're not having it. But then I found out they were paying this guy, who was also in my class because I'm, like, 16, 50 cents more per hour than me, but they're scheduling me for more hours. So I like made a big stink about it and they wouldn't give me the 50 cent raise. So like the young feminist I was, I quit and got a job at the mall. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like you can make way more money at the mall, standing around looking cute and you don't have to like smell like fried food. Yeah. And I was working at the buckle and you get commission at the buckle. Uh So I got really good at like selling head to toe outfits. So from there, I just kept getting these different commission-based 
sales jobs. Like I was a weight loss counselor for LA Weight Loss, uh-huh. the number one in the tri-state area hey. at, at 18. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All my clients were like, how do you stay so skinny? It's like, I'm 18. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm the puberty hasn't, hasn't finished with me yet. Like <laughs> give it a decade. Ended up in like communications for GE, which is what took me to Cincinnati and didn't like it. And Moved out to California, did some branding for this crazy eccentric millionaire, and he was crazy, and we got into a fight, and he fired me. And so I got a gig as a BlackBerry rep. And so I was, like, going into these cell phone stores, like, teaching people how to sell Blackberries, and they promoted me to, like, a national trainer. So they were, like, flying me all over the nation to teach people how to Uh use BlackBerry smartphones and how to sell them. And then things got kind of rocky with BlackBerry, and I was like, this is a sinking ship. Uh. So I was able to parlay that experience, though, into a sales experience with Rubbermaid. So I started out as a washroom specialist, so doing automatic faucets, flushers, waterless urinals, soap dispensers. And I covered Santa Barbara down to San Diego, all of the Inland Empire, but my like primary territory was LA. So going into these skyscrapers and being like, oh, this is how many, this is how much like water 250 automatic faucets can save you oh my this, gosh. like you know doing, yeah hanging out with like janitors and building engineers in the basement uh-huh. and housekeepers like folding laundry in hotels and behind the scenes at the airport and installing faucets like all that stuff yeah so they got rid of my position but they really liked me so they promoted me moved me to Denver, and so then I was covering the entire catalog and half of the state of Colorado. So, like, you know, like, I sold, like, a $100,000 worth of trash cans to the Denver Broncos. If you ever go see a game there, those <laughs> trash cans in the parking lot, on the way to your seat, I sold those. <laughs> wow. Like, I, n- I never think about this, but, like, yeah. somebody's got to decide on that stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, I still notice, like, when I go places now, like, what brand that trash can is, <laughs> who made this can. soap, yeah, yeah. Like, like, yeah, I notice all those things. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. So I'm interested in how did you make the transition from sales kind of jobs to being a full-time writer? <laughs> that's a great question because most writers are not salespeople. Yeah, I think I think of a lot of writers as like maybe not so much people people. Yeah, not people. You like to people. be alone in your in your little cave doing your thing. Right, and I do enjoy that very much and I think a lot of people follow me on Instagram locally and so they just think like I'm just like out and about all the time and it's like no. <laughs> I'm a writer, I'm also a single childless woman who lives alone. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally spending 90% of my time at home with myself, not speaking. So (laughs) the other 10% is what you see on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, so so I'm definitely very much a writer in that way. So when I was in Denver and I was really miserable, but I had to stay for two years because they paid me seven grand relocation to move Mm -hmm. there. And if I left before two years, then I'd have to pay that back. And I'd already like blown all of that at Bed Bath & Beyond. So (laughs) I was like, I got to tough it out. So I was like, all right, well, like I was really depressed and, um, you know, winter was horrible. Weed was too widely available. So I was just like high and miserable all the time. (laughs) High, cold and miserable. So I was like, what should I like be doing with my life? I was like, well, I've always wanted to become a writer, but my dad was military and my mom's an immigrant. So it was very much like, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a good job. And they can give me a couch to crash on if I need to. But 
they're not going to like pay a bill. So I was very focused on like getting a good job and being financially stable. And so that's how I ended up in corporate America because I didn't know how you do those things as a writer. And later in life, I found out that a lot of times people are able to do it because they have a trust fund Mm -hmm. or they have a spouse that's supporting them. And so it's like, okay, well, I don't have any of those things. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. So I, um, in Denver decided, well, you know, I'm going to apply to MFA programs to get my master's in creative writing. And that'll give me something to do, like studying for the GRE, taking writing classes, Mm -hmm. working on my writing. And so at the end of the two years, I got accepted to a few programs and I decided to go to UCR because it was a full ride. And while I'm in program, like there had been a seven year gap between undergrad and when I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And there were folks who'd gone directly. So they didn't really like have any sort of like financially viable skills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they were very stressed out. Like, you know, I have to finish my book and sell it and become a teacher. And it's like, there's some crazy high percentage of people who never write again once they graduate from their MFA program. We all know what like academia is like. So the odds that you're going to like, graduate sell a book and like land a teaching gig like it's like non-existent like Mm -hmm. you'd be lucky if you can get a low-paying no benefits adjuncting gig it's just not an option so I felt a lot less stressed because I knew I could always go back to sales if I needed to so when I first moved back to Louisville I lined up a content writing gig writing about teeth so I was like writing like 40,000 words a week for dentists about like different things teeth related. <laughs> and they were not paying me very well at all. So I just focused on building up my clientele on the side. And then when I was making as much money on the side as I was at my day job, I quit and just focused on freelancing full time. And because I had like this sales and marketing background, like I know how to build a client pipeline. I know, like, it's a numbers game, like, so who cares about rejection? I know a lot of it is just about do people like you and trust you and want to work for you? Like, Mm -hmm. people never really ask to see my resume or who else I've written for Mm because there's somebody else in Louisville that's, like, vouched for me. So I established myself as a content writer for startups. And then while doing that was also building up, like, workshopping, like, teaching creative writing on the side. And so now I'm kind of, like, segueing into focusing more on that. So I spent 10 years working for the man and doing different things but whatever experiences you have like there's a way to repackage those and apply them to what you really want to do in life and we're really in this space right now where a lot of people are kind of like doing that like starting like new careers and finding their own way and it's really exciting it sounds like you've also learned you can't just like do your good work and hope somebody finds you Oh, yeah. No, I totally believe, particularly like as a woman, as a woman of color, that being humble is a trap. Like if you're it is like it's a trap. Like if you're being humble and you're not taking credit for the work that you're doing or letting people know how incredible and like top notch your work is, then somebody else is going to take credit for it. Or some mediocre dude who thinks he's better than he is is going to snatch up that opportunity. So Mm -hmm. I tell people all the time being humble is a total trap. Like, if somebody tells me I'm a good writer, I'm like, no, I'm I'm a great writer. I'm the best writer you know. Like, <laughs> put me up against any writer in the city. Like, <laughs> I will outwrite them. So <laughs> come for me, writers. Speaking of writing, so my third thing is this keyboard that I recently purchased. I'm going to show you a picture of it. Ooh, it's cute. 
Yeah, so it's kind of like a frost blue. It's got, you know, circle keys on it, and it's gray and um, white. It's actually like a mechanical keyboard, so you get that, yeah. like... It reminds me of an old-time typewriter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's got that kind of typewriter feeling to it. It's Bluetooth. It's by Lofree, and this is their season line, so each there's four different colors, mm. and... As I was becoming a full-time writer and I'm spending a lot more time, like, there's just only so much time you can spend, like, hunched over a MacBook Air sitting in your bed. And I, and I maxed out that mm-hmm. time. So finally this year, I was like, I'm going to buy myself a desk and a big monitor and, like, a nice keyboard because I'm a writer and, like, I'm investing in my craft. And I just love this keyboard because every time I sit down, I'm typing at it like clackety clack, clack, clack. It makes me feel very productive, but I like what it represents. And that's the fact, like investing in myself and investing in, in my skills, my craft and my career. Yeah. So you mentioned that you are a, like a relationship advice columnist. Yes. How did you get that? (laughs) So that comes from more of that like swag. Um, When I first moved back to Louisville, I emailed the editor at the Leo and I was like, I would like a column about boomeranging, like moving back to Louisville in your 30s. He's like, we would not like a column about that. But if you'd like to write for us about stories that we need covered, you're welcome to come meet with me. And so then when I went to meet with him, he was like, oh, you know what? You need a relationship advice column. I was like, I do. I do, in fact, need that. So we just kind of went from there and it'll be two years in October. But yeah, and like, and people ask me all the time, like, oh, how'd you get your column at the Leo? I was like, I just emailed the editor and asked for one. (laughs) So... That's amazing. Yeah. Shout out to Keith Stone for believing in me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And why did he think that you'd be particularly suited to relationship advice? I think because we were talking about my memoir, which is just perpetually in progress, the anthology of assholes about dating in Southern California. I just have like a lot of dating stories and maybe we got into talking about those sorts of things. And so a lot of people are like, well, you don't really like have any credentials <laughs> and you're like a single relationship advice columnist. I was like, yeah, but I feel like I've made enough mistakes and most people already know the answer to their question. Like they just need someone else to be like, Hey, Hey friend, yeah. you really just need to talk to this person or you really just need to move on or like, it's not brain surgery. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like giving people tax advice. <laughs> I'm just your buddy, Ninda Honey, listening to your problems and telling you what I think about yeah so is that kind of the approach that you take is just like direct and like they were a good friend yeah absolutely I think you have to be delicate (laughs) delicate but honest with people Mm -hmm. so yeah and like so many of the situations even if I haven't been in that exact situation I've been in that emotional context before Mm -hmm. and a lot of times I feel like a bad relationship is just like the flu like it's just gonna run its course like because you can tell someone oh this person's no good for you or this or this that and that person will know but if you just have these like very strong overwhelming feelings there's not much you can do until you can figure out a way how to like minimize those feelings right so I try to like be very understanding like come from that perspective like Mm -hmm. hey like I know like you're what you're going through is hard and it seems like the answer is simple but sometimes the most simple things are the most complicated do you have like one great rule for people about relationships Mm. 
I think my most consistent advice is really just kind of like you're just gonna have to talk to this person. Right. You know, we we all like to play like detective and put all these different pieces together, and really like you just need to have a direct conversation. And you'd be so surprised sometimes by what that other person is actually thinking or feeling versus this fantasy you've created in your right. in your own head. So. Um, yeah, like being vulnerable isn't easy for anyone and it's hard at the beginning of a relationship and in the middle and especially at the end. So just talk to the person, mm -hmm. I think, is my most consistent advice. And then when I talk to people who are like hesitant about going into like a new relationship type situation, I always just ask them to gauge like, what is your tolerance for heartbreak? Because, like, if you're, like, in a place where, like, it's going to devastate you and you know this person is, like, a f boy or an asshole, then maybe just, like, don't. <laughs> but if you're, like, it's been a while since the last time my heart was stomped all over. I feel like if I get into a situation with this person and they're exactly who I thought they were, that I'll be able to, like, bounce back pretty quickly. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to plummet into depression and lose my job or anything like that then go for it you know like how disruptive is it going to be to your life if you pursue this situation yeah that's yeah. excellent So my fourth thing would be my phone, my actual phone. Uh -huh. um, I am that person. I'm very attached to my phone. Whenever people are like, oh, my phone's dead, I'm always, like, shocked. Like, how did you even let that happen? <laughs> like, I am not that, like, no. Like, my phone, like, if my phone's about to die, it's time for me to, like, bow out of wherever I'm at. Like, I am ready to go home. I do not want to be out in the world with a dead phone. Like, my email's here. Right. My photos are here. Um social media so that I can connect with a bunch of different people is all here. So I'm, I'm like, oh, I don't know how people got by without cell phones. But it's like, no, I remember. I remember. Yeah. It was very inconvenient. <laughs> well, and you, were, and you were on the leading edge of that being a BlackBerry salesperson. So funny story about that. When I was interviewing for the BlackBerry job, they were like, oh, you need to send in a video of you talking about a piece of technology. Oh. So I obviously couldn't talk about my iPhone. Couldn't talk about my laptop because it was like five years old. Uh, so I did the interview talking about my flat iron because that was like <laughs> the most high tech thing that I owned. <laughs> I guess I convinced them of the, you know, the quality of a flat iron. And so then from there, I had to completely learn how to use a BlackBerry and become a BlackBerry expert. Yeah. Are you a big social media user? Yeah, I am. I am. Uh, I've definitely been trying to cut back. Like, I deleted Facebook off of my phone. Mm. But it's hard. It's a, it's a line you have to walk. Like, I don't think I could get rid of it completely just because I am a writer. Mm -hmm. So my livelihood is kind of predicated on me having a presence of mm -hmm. some sort. Even with Louisville, Louisville being a smaller city, like, either people that follow me on Instagram and know who I am because of that. So there are opportunities that come out of that. A lot of writers mostly kind of use Twitter. So anytime I publish something, those outlets and those editors, like they expect you to be pushing that content right. on social media. It's part of the job too. now too. Tell me about the Dating While Woke series. Is that, <laughs> is that the hashtag? Dating yep, while the hashtag woke? is Dating While Woke. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, last year for Long Reads, my first essay with them ever was uh, Woman of Color in Wide Open Spaces. And so it was about my experience road tripping back from California to Louisville. And I had to go to a writer's retreat in Lake Tahoe. So I decided to drive from Southern California up and across to Lake Tahoe. Mm. So I was like, oh, I should go see all the national parks. Yeah. And I don't know how much you know about MFA programs, but like many things, they're very white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that can be kind of oppressive. So I was like, oh, I'm going to spend this time in nature detoxing from whiteness and it's like oh no wait (laughs) the great outdoors is also incredibly white Ah. so I wrote a lot about like the various like types of racism that I experienced on that trip um, and how I learned that like while there isn't a place in this country for people of color to escape whiteness, we can escape into each other. So like my very last stop was visiting a black woman friend in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I mean, we had an incredible time. And Lincoln is just as white as any of the other places I went to. There's black people in Lincoln, Nebraska? (laughs) Right. And the incredible black people. And so we just had this wonderful time. And it was because of like who she is. And I was like, yeah, this is like, this is my solace. This is my, my retreat from the world. And so... Uh, that essay ended up doing really, really well for them. And so the editor was like, would you like to write a series for us? And I was like, okay, well, I think it makes the most sense for me to do a dating series. And as we were talking through the topics, that's kind of how we honed in on this theme. Mm -hmm. So the first one was just kind of like about like politics as a defense against heartbreak. Mm. So being 33 and kind of just reevaluating my dating life and like my dating criteria and standards and how much of it is like, hey, like obviously like I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who voted for Trump. So like that's like, okay, that's fine. But then how much of it are like some of these criteria I have that's mainly like if they're a person of color, if they are liberal, if they're this, if they're that, then that's going to mean it's going to be less likely my heart's going to get broken because we're aligned politically, you know? so interesting. Versus sometimes, you know, my friends who are dating the most progressive men are like, they weren't that way when I found them. So Uh (laughs) they had to do a lot of work or some of them are dealing with these things behind closed doors. They're making these compromises. And so first essay was kind of about like thinking that over and then it was the farewell to f- boys essay in consent <laughs> culture it was about not only just like f- boys and like just the way they've perpetuated like you know emotional violence and trauma on women but also how like women i speaking especially of myself it's like hey like i was dealing with these men and like really trying to like contort myself or treat them like Rubik's cubes that I could figure out Mm. and like oh if I figure you out then like we can have a relationship but then at the same time I was being manipulative in my own way and it was just like why am I doing this like what happens if I do figure out the Rubik's cube and then it's like oh then I spend the rest of my life being this specific type of person and kind of like adhering myself like a barnacle to this person's just like crustiness and complicatedness versus just like being my own person and bringing my own things into relationships. So, so yes, it's about boys, but it's also about like the different types of positions we put ourselves in. about your fifth and final thing. My fifth and final thing would be my library card. Um, have it on my keychain. Uh-huh. 
to wear my Blockbuster card or my LA Fitness card once right. was. <laughs> so, How the world has changed. So I didn't have a library card for a really long time. Like I had one as a kid. And I was that kid, you know, who would go and be, ask the librarian, like, how many books can you check out at once? <laughs> I'm just going to check out all 20 of these Sweet Valley High books. Like, and I grew up in Fern Creek. And at the time, there was a big parking lot behind our house. And across the other side of the parking lot was a strip mall. And the library was very bizarrely on the edge mm-hmm. of the strip mall. It's like a jazzer size now. <laughs> but so, like, as a kid, I could walk to the library from my house yeah. just, like, across this parking lot. So the library was, like, very important to me. And then as I got older, older and got out of school you know when I was at UofL I was going to UofL's library and then you enter into like the real world air quotes into the right. real world and so I just wasn't going to the library as much yeah. and I was buying books also as a writer there's like this like secret belief inside me it's like oh if I buy books then when I release my book people will buy it it's so, your karma yeah doing like your, my doing literary your karma <laughs> putting it out into the world you know I wasn't really hanging out at the library and then all that stuff happened earlier this year about oh the library should be replaced by Amazon and mm. people were acting like the library doesn't serve a role or have a place in the community and right around that same time I was the artist in residence at the South Central Regional Library. So it's the new one that's in Okalona near like the Jefferson Mall. Yeah. And that library is primarily there to serve immigrants and refugees. So you go to that library and it's just like this bustling community. People are taking advantage of the computers and the programming and like interacting with each other, engaging with each other. They have this artist in residence program. So every month they have a different artist who does different types of programming. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, I need a library card. Like if I'm going to be the art library, uh-huh. I need to get my library game on. So I got my library card and, you know, I was checking out more books. And now I just wrapped up a Saraband workshop for the writing labs we just did the writing labs and it went really well and when they were like oh where should we do this I was like oh we should do it at the library so I feel like if you're actively engaged in the library you're just more actively engaged in your community as Mm. a whole and Louisville has such a great library system Mm -hmm. and people maybe don't know that libraries do more Mm -hmm. than check out books yeah the library is kind of low-key radical in its own way you know like those librarians are uh Because they believe that information Mm -hmm. should be free and that everybody should have access to it. And the social work that they wind up doing that's not even really part of their job description, but because everybody uses the library. The library is almost like just as relevant to community as like if you're faith based and you have a church like some people have a library. And instead of, like, nuns or pastors or whatever, they've got these librarians. Mm-hmm. Librarians are definitely, like, stewards and guardians of our community and help kind of shaping our community values and, like, what type of community we want to live mm-hmm. in. What did you do for your artist-in-residence project? So I did a couple of workshops. I did one that was, like, your Louisville so, like, working with folks about, like, you know, mostly, like, immigrants, um, refugees, people that move from more rural areas into mm-hmm. Louisville, about, like, how Louisville shaped them and how they've shaped Louisville mm-hmm. and kind of just seeing Louisville differently through their eyes. So I worked with a few people on that. And then I have a workshop that I do with children teaching them how to write memoir called Kitchen Table Time Machine. And so I use their favorite food as a launching point into the past. Did you start with your rice cooker? (laughs) (laughs) I talked about, as my example, I talked about my mom's pork chops and Mm -hmm. how they're just like crispy and golden. And I actually use Eddie Wong, who, um, fresh off the boat, Mm -hmm. he has a memoir where he talks about like the first time he'd ever had like green bean casserole. Mm -hmm. 
because his family didn't really like do Thanksgiving. And I remember the first time I had green bean casserole was because like I had a white boyfriend in high school. And <laughs> <laughs> it was a very cultural exchange kind of yep. thing. Um, so maybe it was Thanksgiving. Like I'd gone to his house for Thanksgiving and his mom had made green bean casserole. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And I got home and told my mom about it and she got so jealous that she like made me green bean casserole the next week. But she didn't like do like the canned and like the frozen, like, you know, yeah. like, fresh green beans, her own mushroom gravy. Her own. I'm like, mom, like, it's just not the same. Like, where's like, it's not sodium-y. Like it's... Uh, it, is, it, is, it is a sad fact of like white people food in this country that I, I, I realized not too long ago that all of my family like heirloom recipes they all include brand name products <laughs> like Ritz and yeah, Coca-Cola I and Jell-O I know I know it was like this is my heritage it's like frozen broccoli and Velveeta <laughs> with Ritz crackers on top yes oh my gosh so yeah rough. my mom I, like the first time his family had me over for dinner and I came home my mom was like half asleep she's like how'd dinner go I was like oh I didn't really eat much like his mom made sloppy joes and she's like what kind of people are they? Like, she was appalled that you would make, not that she never made sloppy joes, but it's like, it's not food you serve to company. So yeah. even though it was just like a very like weeknight, casual kind of dinner, uh-huh. she was just like, oh my God. You know, she's very much the type of person, like when he would come over for dinner at our house, she would like make me make his plate. And I'm like, he's a grown person. Like, he, how am I supposed to know how much rice he wants? Yeah, like, you yeah, know? yeah. But you know, she's very traditional in that way. <laughs> making food for somebody is a way to take care of them Absolutely. and show them respect. All right. Well, it's about time for us to wrap up. I have one last question for okay. you. Uh, in the process of choosing these five things, was there anything that you learned or discovered about yourself? Yeah, I guess maybe, um, like I was saying at the beginning, I was just reminded of the fact that I don't, even though, like I said, like I would never describe myself as someone who isn't materialistic. I Maybe I am kind of minimal. Like I don't like clutter. I don't that just kind of reminded me that I don't have a strong attachment to things, but there are like, there are just kind of like foundations, you know, like having a mode of transportation because that represents freedom to me or having a phone because that's really just like connecting me to the world at large. What the like symbolism is behind the thing. Sundresses, like I just have a closet full of sundresses. I couldn't tell you a specific sundress that I love, but as long as I have a sundress in my life, I know like I'm gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. So being reminded of that and thinking about that was kind of what came out of this exercise. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with no, me. No, thank you for reaching out and asking me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks again to Minda Honey for being my guest today. Our show was produced, edited, and mixed by me with editing oversight from Laura Ellis. Our theme music is by Alex Wright. You can get more information on our show at WFPL.org and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. Thank you.